Last week, where we left off, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. One week, is that me or you guys? Are we on? Okay, one week before Jesus, actually five days, because the triumphal entry was on a Friday. And so actually, yeah, one week to the point where Jesus was going to die on the cross. And so, the, as you guys know, the, the, the Lamb of God in the Old Testament is a picture. It's a type of Jesus. And, and, and in the Old Testament, you would bring a lamb to the house of God, and it had to be blameless. It had to be without spot or blemish. And the priest would examine that lamb. And it was that process that, that Jesus went in in last week's study and he overturned the money tables because the, the priests and, and, and the Levites were making a mockery of the house of God and they were turning it into a den of thieves and they were ripping people off because they wouldn't accept the lambs that they brought in as, as being perfect, without spot and without blemish and were selling them other lambs at an exorbitant price. But, but the lamb and the way the law of Moses laid it out was that the lamb or the things that we offer to God had to be perfect and without blemish, spot. And, and the things that God desires in your life, in my life, is our best. He wants us to give him our best. And so we don't want to give God a half-hearted effort or tap the arrows on the ground three times. We want to tap them seven times. We don't want to fill the water pots half full. We want to fill the water pots to overflowing as we offer these things to God. And so Jesus being the Passover lamb and one of the titles of Jesus, right? What, was the, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus for the first time? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus as the, the true lamb of God. And in the Old Testament, they would take that lamb and they would, they would cut the lamb's throat. And then ceremonially, you would confess your sins or you would give your sins and the priest would lay them on the altar. And then he would take the blood of that lamb and he would sprinkle it upon the altar and it would cover your sins and, and, and thus make atonement temporarily for your sins. And all of this was leading up to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was going to take away the sins of the world. And the blood of Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, unlike the blood of lambs, it doesn't cover our sins anymore. It washes them away as if they never happened. It puts them from as far as the east is from the west. It throws them into the sea of forgetfulness. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so as the lamb had to be perfect or spot, where we are without spot or blemish, where we are in Mark chapter 11 and getting into 12 this morning, is Jesus is on display. The whole world can see. It's God presenting his Passover lamb so the world can testify that he's without spot or blemish. And, and at the end of this week, that he's going to be on trial and be tested and be um, examined thoroughly so, they, so that there's a count that he's without spot or blemish at the very end at the trial. What does Pontius Pilate say of Jesus? I find no fault in this man. And so let's, let's begin uh, where we left off last week. And I wanted, you know, I was supposed to finish 11 last week. And I wanted it supposed to be in 12 today. And 12's got like 44 verses. And I got like nine I didn't finish last week. But I said, ah, I was this morning, I was struggling. Am I just going to start fresh in 12 where we're supposed to be this morning? And I said, ah, I can't leave those undone. I know what I'll do. I'll finish 11 and then I'll get all of 12 done this morning. You guys are so mean. You just laugh at me. And so I told the lad the nine o'clock service, we're going we're gonna to do it. You watch. I'm going to... Not even close. So we'll be in the second half of 12 next week. But we're going we're gonna to have the same plan today. We'll see what happens. But there was just so much as we went through it that I couldn't leave undone. That um, really the, the Spirit of God just, just moved and we, we had to discuss and talk about. So let's begin in verse number 25 where we left off last week. And it says, And whenever you stand praying, if, any, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Oftentimes I ask the question, is the Bible written in Chinese? And what I mean for that is if you don't read Chinese and it's written in Chinese, it would be hard to understand. Sometimes you may read something in the Bible and you think, man, where is the Bible scholar? Where is the, the rabbi, the teacher, someone that can come and help me understand what this says? And how can we break down the Greek structure of this sentence and the phrase and the meaning to get what God is trying to tell me in this sentence? This is not one of those places. This is English. And let me, let me, let me see if anybody can understand this. Verse 26. 
If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Anybody need me to bring the rabbi in to explain that to you? Or do we get it? If you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. It's very simple, folks. It really is. And, and as a Christian, when you, when you became a born-again Christian, you asked Jesus in your heart, one of the things that you forfeited was the right of unforgiveness. It's something that God does not allow His people to have, to entertain, or, or to, to be a part of their lives. You have to forgive. You have to. Part of the reason is that it's a slap in God's face if you don't forgive people who have harmed you or, or hurt you. Because of what you've been forgiven is so great and so much that you, you have been delivered literally from the depths of hell into eternity in heaven with God. And the sins that God forgave you um, are so great that the worst thing that someone could do to you here on this side of eternity pales in comparison to the forgiveness that God, God gave you. And so for, for God to forgive you all of this and you not to forgive somebody this, it's a slap in God's face. And God says you have to forgive. It, it's just a rule. Now I want to tell you something. It, thankfully, it doesn't say you have to feel like forgiving. It's an action. It's not an emotion. It's like love. Love is an action. It's a verb. It's, a, it's an action word. It's not an emotion. Emotion comes with love. Emotion comes with, with forgiveness. But it's an action. And you have to forgive and you don't have to feel like it. Just do it. And so forgive one another. And I want to tell you, God doesn't tell you that you have to forgive because it's just some hard rule that he has and he's just staunch about it and just the way he decided it's going to be. So you have to forgive. It's because he loves you and it's for you. And the reality is, if you have unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody who sinned against you, that person who you have the unforgiveness towards, I guarantee you it doesn't affect their life one iota. But it hurts your spouse. It hurts your children. And you bitter, you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, and you're short with your wife, and you're mad at your kids, and dinner time's miserable because you're grumpy, because you have unforgiveness. And the people that love you the most, and you love the most, are the ones that are hurt and affected by your unforgiveness for some jerk who doesn't deserve it. And, the, and, and, the, and whoever it is, and whatever they've done, I'm sure it's terrible and evil. And there probably are some low life. That, that, but the reality is you're going to let that person, you're going to let that situation affect your home and your life and your joy. And, and for you, God says, forgive, let, let it go. Because it'll release you. You know, I think one of the most powerful things, if you've ever been a witness to it, I know one of the most impactful things that I've ever been a part of in my life is, is in a court case. And, and the, the story can be repeated several times. But there's a criminal who's getting ready to be sentenced to life in prison, to death. And the family of the victim, the mom of the victim stands there and looks at this criminal and with all sincerity and all truth of heart says, I forgive you. I'm going to pray for you. We love you. And that criminal may have just murdered and raped their daughter. May have killed or done something terrible. And you, that the emotion that, that you feel when you see that mom who's so broken and can stand there and look that person in the eyes and in truth say, I forgive you. Man, you think my, your, your first reaction is, oh, I would never be able to forgive. And it's just a real emotion that swells up in you. You're like, there's no way if somebody did that to my wife or my kids that I would ever be able to forgive them. And yet when you walk in those shoes, God's going to give you the grace and God's going to give you what you need in that moment. And that's what happened for those people. They're not, they're not any more exceptional people than you and I are. They're people who God's Holy Spirit showed up and did something amazing in their life. And they were able and have this, this moment of power and forgiveness. And yet, if, if, they, if they made a choice that, hey, I, it just, it's too terrible what they did, I can't forgive. It's only going to destroy them. And praise God, man, the joy and the power that, that there is in forgiving. Now, I want to break this down a little bit. It's a couple things here. First of all, you have to forgive. We've established that. Now let's back up to 25. And he says, whenever you stand praying. Now, whenever Jesus talks about praying. Now here he says, whenever you stand praying. Well, really, why does it say stand praying? Because one of the traditions of the Jews is they stand while they pray. When you go to the Western Wall, what do you see? You see Jews standing like this and praying. And this is exactly what they look like. And that's, that's a tradition to stand and pray. Jesus gave us multiple examples of, of the way that he prayed. Sometimes standing, sometimes kneeling, 
Sometimes hands raised, sometimes eyes open facing heaven. Okay, the only thing you don't find in the Bible as an example is hands folded and eyes closed and head bowed. That, that, that started in Sunday school. All right, fold your hands, close your eyes, bow your head, let's pray. But, that, that, but praying again, right? Jesus oftentimes when he prayed, his eyes were open. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knelt. You see him standing. But, he, but whenever Jesus talks about praying in the Bible, he doesn't say if you pray. It's, 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 uh, it's expected. It's insinuated. It's assumed by Jesus that, that you will be a people of prayer. And last week he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And so you, for you Christians, you, you, it's required. I mean, it's assumed, it's expected that we pray. And what does that mean? And I want to tell you that that means that you're a people of prayer. And not people that say, yeah, I'll pray for you, brother. And you're the first one on Facebook. Hey, my brother's sick. Will everybody pray? Oh, I'm praying right now, man. And the next YouTube video comes on and there it goes. And so what does that mean practically? That means you, you spend some time in your life praying. Have a place where you go and you, you get away from whatever's going on in your day daily and you pray out loud. And while you're alone, nobody can hear you. You don't have to be embarrassed. And you could pray out loud and you can pray and have a Bible and have some music if you need to. But he says, when you pray, and I'm encouraging us as Christian people that praying can't be something that we say, oh, I'll pray for you or I pray or you before you or as you're getting in bed, you pull the covers over and you start mumbling some stuff until you wake up in the morning and you, you know, you fell asleep. That, that's kind of a, a half hearted effort. That's filling the water pots half full. That's tapping the arrows on the ground only two times. When God said, tap them seven times and give me a full effort and don't phone it in. And so just again, Establish in your life a time to pray, a place to pray, a, a practicality. And when, you, when someone says to you, hey, will you pray for me? Or if you're, you, know, you text somebody back that texts you or you know, a prayer request, actually pray. Take 30 seconds and separate yourself. It doesn't take all day, 30 seconds to stop and just, just verbalize a prayer about that situation. If someone's in your presence and they say, hey, you know, I need this thing, will you pray for me? Don't tell them, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Say, no, let's pray right now. Let's stop right now and, and cover so that it's covered and it's prayed for. And we're praying right now. Such a good practice. But, but as Christians, Jesus said, when you stand praying, not if, when you stand praying, and if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. So he says, when you stand praying, forgive somebody. And, and I don't know where this practice came from in the Christian church, but it's all too prevalent. It really needs to die. Oh, you know, brother, Pastor Chris, you know, I've hated you for like 10 years and you've been the biggest jerk and I've been so mad at you and you did all this stuff that just really made me mad and I think you're just the worst pastor, but I want to let you know, I forgive you, brother. I, I, I forgive you, man. Who else thinks I'm a jerk? Who else thinks I'm the worst pastor in the world? Is it only him or is it the rest of you? And, and, and we want to go and we want to stab somebody by, and then cover it by saying, oh, but I forgive you. And really, that's not what Jesus said. You know, Jesus said, when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So when you go to pray in your prayer closet, and you're alone, and you realize you're harboring bitterness. Say, I forgive you. I forgive. I forgive. Release that forgiveness. It's a decision. And I've talked to too many people who understand that it's just a simple decision. And they won't, they're not willing to make it. Make that decision. I encourage you in Jesus. Forgive that person. And just say, I forgive you and release them. Maybe there's somebody in your heart, in your mind right now, and God's calling you right now to forgive somebody who's harmed you or hurt you. Right now, in your heart, in your mind, you forgive that person. So that your Father in heaven will forgive you. So that you can release yourself from bondage and bitterness. And so that you don't hurt your family and people that love you. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Now, some of you might say, well, what about where Jesus said, you know, if your brother has ought against you, go to him and make it right. Two different situations. Jesus is teaching two different things that, that don't co-mingle. Here he says, when you stand praying and you have unforgiveness, forgive that person. In the other situation, he says, if you come to bring a gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has ought against you, not dealing with unforgiveness in your heart, dealing with a brother who, who's a brother who, has, who, who you have something going on between the two of you. You got in a fight, you got in an argument, there's something wrong, you're mad at each other. He says, leave the offering and go to that brother and, and make it right. 
So, if, you know, if, if, if I know that Mike's upset with me and I come to bring my altar, my offering to the altar and there God puts it on my heart. Hey, that thing going on with you and Mike, it just ain't right. I got to leave the altar. I got to go to Mike and I got to say, hey, man, you know, what, what's going on with this situation? And, and I know you're upset with me about this and I want to ask your forgiveness. And, you know, let's let's work this out. And that, that's a different situation. OK. And that whole practice of going to people after 10 years and telling them how terrible they were and how mad you've been at them, but you want to let them know that you forgive them, brother. Cut that out. It's not loving. It's not Christian. It's not, it's, it's not God's heart, you guys. And it's, it's not, you know, the, the reality is it's not, um, it's not loving, right? And ultimately, if you, if you look at it under the eyes of, of loving, I, I don't think it's what... What, what God's heart is. So just forgive. It's a decision. Let's move on. Verse 27, it says, Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? You who gave, and who gave you this authority to do these things? What are the things that he was doing? He was preaching, teaching, but he had just left the temple where he did what? He cleansed the temple. He overthrew the money changers. He threw everything out. He whipped. He kicked people out. He didn't let people pass through. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who do you think you are to come into our temple and, 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 and overturn the money changers? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So, you know, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these groups were constantly coming to Jesus and trying to trap him on the horns of the dilemma. And I want to let you know that they understood Jesus was, was no easy mark. That, that he was very wise and very smart. And they had learned in a very short time that they weren't going to just come to him with any dumb question that, that he wouldn't be able to answer, that they would trap him. And so they would be in groups and they would think about these things and they would think of a question that no matter which way he answered it, they had him. And they thought about all the angles and they worked out these questions and they're constantly coming to Jesus with these questions that there was no right answer to. And every time Jesus speaks to the situation and, and, and outsmarts them and shows them the truth from the word of God. And so Jesus is almost using this to them, um, same kind of tactic almost, where he says, you know, you answer a question for me. And it says... The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said, We don't know. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so they, they, they couldn't answer the question. They, they realized if, you know, if, Jesus, if, if it was true, he'd say, Why didn't you go do it? And so Jesus dismissed these, these dishonest questions. Chapter 12, it says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. So a parable, again, we've been through a lot of parables already through the Gospel of Luke and Mark. A parable is, the word parable is two Greek words, para. It's the same word when we describe our, our relationship with the Holy Spirit, para and api, the three separate relationships that we have alongside, in, and upon. And so this, for this word parable comes from the same Greek word para, which means alongside. And the second part of it, bolas, is to cast. So it's to cast alongside. So it's a truth that casts alongside or runs parallel with another truth. It's a truth that illustrates a truth. And Jesus, being the greatest teacher and communicator that ever lived, he, he oftentimes would use something that was... Um, culturally understandable. A shepherd and a sheep is something they would have been very familiar with. A vineyard and a vine dresser, something they would have been very familiar with. And so Jesus here is teaching in parables. The other reason why Jesus taught in parables is a parable does something else. A parable conceals a truth and it also reveals a truth. It reveals a truth to those that have the Spirit of God as the Bible says that these things are spiritually discerned. And for somebody who doesn't have the Spirit of God and doesn't know Jesus in a personal relationship, oftentimes they're not going to get what the Bible is saying because it's spiritually discerned as the Holy Spirit quickens it and discerns it to your life and your heart. And so for those that want to hear and want to receive, a parable conceal, uh, reveals a truth. For those who have a hard heart and don't want to hear, the same parable will, will conceal it and they, they won't have to find it in there because Jesus is not going to force himself in anybody's life. Amen? 
So it says, A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent his servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of their fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant and, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some therefore still having one son his beloved he also sent him to that they sent him to them last saying they will respect my son but those vine dressers said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard therefore wait till the owner of the vineyard excuse me therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do he will come to destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this particular parable I think is pretty obvious, right? The, the landowner is the Lord. And he sent through the Old Testament prophet after prophet after prophet. And the, and the nation of Israel and the people of Israel killed or stoned or rejected them. Some they killed, some they hurt. You can read Hebrews chapter 11 at the end, and it talks about some of God's prophets and how they were treated. And Isaiah, the prophet who wrote the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters, it says in Hebrews he was sawn in two, lengthwise, from his head to, to you know, between his legs, all the way down or up or down one way, not across, but through the middle of his body. The other prophets, the same thing. Some were thrown into the lion's den, and, and different things were killed. And so the parable is about God sending the prophets and eventually he's going to send his own son and his own son they're going to reject. And then he quotes Psalm 118, quoted multiple times in the New Testament and this idea that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You know, it's so amazing how God takes real stories and real events and, 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 and he, he supernaturally weaves them into um, his plan and his and his you know his picture of what he's trying to do. So there's a story when Solomon was building his temple, a real story. And they, the, as you guys know, they didn't um, quarry any rocks at the side of the building of the temple because they didn't want there to be the sound of neither hammer nor chisel where the temple of God was being built. They built it with such precision that you couldn't put a knife through the cracks, and there was no mortar used in the stones that were built in Solomon's temple. And the stones that were humongous stones, hundreds of tons, would lay perfectly on top of each other. And you couldn't fit a credit card in between them because of the precision of the, of, of the craftsmanship. And a stone had come in, and the builders weren't sure where it fit, and so they threw it off the side of the hill, and the grass grew over it. And then, and then the end of the building project came, and they were ready for the chief cornerstone. The, the most important stone in the building project. And they sent to the quarry and they said, we're ready for the chief cornerstone. And they, they checked the log and they said, well, uh, we sent that like six months ago. That stone that was rejected, that they rolled off the side of the hill and the grass has grown over, was the most important, was the chief cornerstone. The stone that the, the, that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a prophecy of Jesus that Jesus would be rejected and that he would be and is Messiah. And so he quotes that for him. And obviously, like I said, this parable is, is there. I met a rabbi in Israel. And while we were in Israel recently, um, there, there's, and it was cool. I had, a, I had a good conversation with him. We went to this downtown area, the shopping area in the old city of Jerusalem. And that picture I have back there where I'll write my name in Shiloh, I bought that at his shop. I didn't buy this at his shop, but we bought that at his shop. And while we were there, Pastor Gerald said to the, some of us in the group, he said, you know, if anybody has any questions for the rabbi about the Bible, about Judaism versus Christianity, he's great to talk to. You're not going to offend him. You know, you can talk openly and any concern or any questions, you, things you don't understand. And he said, you know, he, we've been coming here for years. He's great to talk to. So I'm like, great. I got to think of something intelligent to say to this guy now. What am I going to say? Like, what am I going to? And, and you know what? My heart was never like, okay, like I'm going to tell him about Jesus. And this guy's going to be receiving Jesus in his heart in five minutes. You know, that, 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 that's just the reality was, you know, he, he has blinders on his eyes and, and he's, he lives to, to defend in those things. And, but I wanted to just find out some information, learn something from him really is what I wanted to do. 
And I don't know if you guys remember, but I showed a video here. Um, it's been a while now, but it, it a, there's a famous rabbi in Israel. His name was Yitzhak Kaduri. And Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri was, died like at 112 years old. When he died, 250,000 people attended his funeral. Yitzhak Kaduri was the leading um, rabbi um, scholar in Israel for, for lots and lots of years. Very well respected. Later in his life, in the last few years of his life, um, his, his teaching was primarily about Messiah and the return of Messiah. Before his death, Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri said that Messiah had, had come to him and, and revealed his name or told Yitzhak Kaduri who Messiah was and that he would reveal it to his students in Israel and, and he was going to write it in a letter. And, and at his death, he, he, he requested that one year after he died, after, from the date of his death, that they would open the letter and read it. And a year later, they opened the letter that Yitzhak Kaduri wrote, and I think he died in 2012. And they opened the, the, the letter a year later, and in it was the name Yeshua. And, and so they, they swept it under the rug, they, they, they explained it away, they, it never made big news after that. It was big news up until the time they actually opened the letter and read it and found the name Yeshua in the letter. And, 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 and got rid of it. And I showed you the video. Very interesting. So I asked him about that. I said, what do you think about Yitzhak Kaduri and his revelation? And he said, oh, I think it's great, except for it's just not true. It didn't happen. And he explained it away. And, and then he goes on and he says, he says, oh, yeah, it's like they tell me the forbidden scripture that the rabbis don't want you to read, Isaiah 53. And if you're not familiar, Isaiah 53 is an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross. And you read it. And it reads exactly like one of the Gospels of exactly what would happen to Jesus as he died on the cross, prophesied perfectly 800 years before Messiah would come, what would happen to Jesus. And he said, oh, the forbidden scripture, Isaiah. He's like, oh, no. And he starts explaining away Isaiah 53. And I'm like, how can you read that and not see that's talking about Jesus? But, you know, again, if you have blinders on your eyes, you can see it the way you want to see it. And, 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 you know, I left there and I got back to the United States. And I wish I would have thought about this earlier. But I'm like, you know what I should have told him? You know what I wish I would have said? And when I go back, when I go back, we're going to go to the old city. and I'm going to go find him. <laughs> and I'm going to tell him that, that Isaiah 53 is not the forbidden scripture, that it's the New Testament. And why don't you pick a gospel and read the gospels? Because I, as I'm reading the gospels after this conversation with this guy, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I should have told him. It's just something that Jesus was just telling the people in his day right there. And I'm like, oh, that would have been really good. And then I get to the next section. I was like, oh no, that would have been better. And then I get to the next one. I'm like, oh, that's really good. I mean, I wish I would have told that rabbi that. But just to read the New Testament, if this guy would just read the New Testament, you know, even in our own backyard, you guys, one of the most powerful witnessing tools that you have is to encourage people and get people just to read the Bible on their own. If you, if you can encourage people, you may not be able to argue with them theology and doctrine and differences of religions and all that. But if you can get them and encourage people just to go to the Word of God for themselves and read it, their lives will change. All right, we better move on. I'm watching the clock. I'm not going to make it again. All right, verse 13. Well, actually, I didn't read 12, but it says, And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left and went their way. So basically, they understood the parable was against them. They understood it was talking about Jesus. It was very clear what it meant. And then it went on in verse number 13. It says, Then they sent him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Oh my. Beware of sappy, sweet people. Beware of the, the leaven of flattery. Beware of, of somebody who comes with flattery and is... And, and, and Jesus knows their heart. He's going to go on. He's going to say that... So they came. Their heart was against him. They didn't like him. They're trying to trap him. They, they don't think he is who he is. It's all fake on the outside. And they come in smiling with their teeth shining. Ting, and they're, you know, they're giving him this, this flattery of, oh, you're so wonderful. And, and it's all a bunch of phony baloney. It's all a bunch of phony baloney. And beware of that. And, and Jesus knowing that. So they said to him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And then what does it say here? It says, but he knew in verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, forget their flattery. Jesus saw through it. He knew their hypocrisy. And he said to them, why do you test me? I'll bring me a denarius that I may see it. This is one of my favorites of all of all the uh, times where Jesus was tested with these questions that were invented to to trap him between a rock and a hard place. And he's like, why do you guys test me? Bring me a coin. Someone brings him a coin and he looks at it and he says, whose picture is that? And they say, that's Caesar's. And at this point, it would have been Caesar Tiberius, who was the ruling Caesar in Rome at the time. And he would have said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And he would have flipped the coin back to him like, that's all you guys got? Like, and what a, what a brilliant answer. Because knowing that if Jesus said, don't pay taxes that all they would have had to do was take him and turn him into the Romans as a tax dodger, a tax evader, and the Romans would have dealt with him very diff- very harshly. If he said, yes, do pay taxes, then all of the Jews would have been very upset and offended by what Jesus said because they, they hated the taxes. How many of you guys, by the way, love to pay taxes? <laughs> don't be judging the Jews that they hated to pay taxes. I don't, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily love it either, right? And, and, and but the, the, the thing for us is we don't pay our taxes to Russia. Can you imagine if Russian government came and started taxing you and you had to pay taxes and they went to Russia? And that was the system the Jews lived under. Rome was the, the governing body, the power authority, and all the taxes that they paid didn't even go and stay within Israel. They left and they went to Rome. And they were taxed on three different areas. There was three different taxes that they had to pay. You, you had an income tax, you had a land tax, and then you had a tax just if you were alive and living and, and you breathed, you paid a tax. And, and so these were the taxes that, that they hated and they, they went to Rome. And so Jesus looking at that in the first part, he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So today Jesus would look at you and he would say, render unto Washington the things that are Washington's. So in other words, you've got to pay your taxes. And if you're a Christian person, um, it's a bad witness, right? If you cheat on your taxes and you don't pay your taxes, it's, it's not only a bad witness, but it's, it's sin, right? It's untruthful. It's, 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 it's dishonest. Those are not qualities that God desires for you. So yes, we, we do have to pay our taxes. But you don't have to pay a penny more than you're supposed to. I'm not about paying any more than I have to. You know, we, we, sometimes people in the offering, you know, we'll, we'll get it here in a minute. You know, should I write my name on it or not? Well, yeah, write your name on it because it's, it's in the culture, the system that we live in. Our government offers you a tax deduction on all of your charitable donations that come to a 501c3. So, yeah, why, why are we going to pay more taxes than we have to? It's not a, you know, it, 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 the heart is not by writing your name on it that you're waving it around to everybody in here before you put it in. It's different. God is looking at the heart. So, um, but then the second part of this that we oftentimes, I think, overlook and even as important is, is God says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So yes, pay your taxes and what Caesar requires. In, in Hebrews, I'm sorry, yeah, in Romans chapter 13, it says that we are to obey the, law, lands, the laws of the land. When Paul wrote that, he, he was under a, a tyrannical government that was murdering Christians and was terrible to, towards the church. And Paul said that we should obey. And we, we've been through it already, but there does come a time when civil obedience is required for civil disobedience is required for us as Christians. And when man's law tries to change God's law, then we always follow God's law. God's law trumps man's law. But for the most part, as a rule, it's God's will that we follow man's laws. Right. And then the second part, God says, render unto God the things that are God's. Now, we could talk about tithing and giving here, and, and, and this would be a good spot to talk about money and pass the offering bag again and um, render unto God the things that are God's. And we could get into the, the Malachi scriptures. But you know what? There's more to it than just your money. And, and, and your money is just a matter of your heart because what God is really interested in your heart. And, and again, what we'll see if we get to it with the widow's two mites is that God is interested in, in what it costs us to give. Is it, does it, did it require faith to give? Is, is it something where you, you can just afford it and you don't miss it? And it, it requires zero faith or zero effort or zero sacrifice for you to give unto the Lord. And that's more what God's interested in than the actual amount that we give or, or what we give is that we have to, we have to trust God with everything we have. And, and so here, rendering unto God your heart, your time, your, your resources, your serving. What do you do in your life that's rendering something unto God? 
And if what you do in your life is you come to church on Sunday and you sit there and you say, Pastor, bless me. Bless me, Pastor. I'm going to go to a different church. (laughs) Go read what this says here. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things are God's. So where in your life is there an outlet? Where in your life is there a place where, you know, you're rendering something unto God? And, and part of that is just, you know, in your prayer life at home, spending time, getting in that closet like we talked about, getting in the word every day, building a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to force fruit. You don't have to feel guilty. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. But start developing first and building your relationship with Jesus. And then God's going to naturally give you opportunities to serve and places to, for outlet and places to where you can be a part of rendering unto God the things that are God's. Amen? Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. I'm trying to decide what to pass over. Nothing. We're just going to slow down and keep going. Um, so let's go to 18. It says, then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. And now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife dying and left no offspring. And the second took her and died and then on and on and on until all seven had her. And lastly, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. So we're going to get Jesus's answer in verse 24. And so before we do that, this is the Sadducees. Now, there's two groups of um, religious rulers in Israel in the, in the religious or the, the Jewish government at the time. And they were primarily made, the Sanhedrin was a body of 70 men that ruled and made laws and rules. The same part of them that was ruled by a high priest who Jesus stood before, is going to stand before here shortly. So in this group of 70 um, councilmen, rulers, leaders of Jewish law was made up primarily of two groups of men. One was the Sadducees and the other was the Bible 101, guys, Sadducees and Pharisees. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're Sadducee. I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not Pharisee. You guys didn't learn that in Sunday school? All right. Maybe just me. I didn't even go to Sunday school. (laughs) I get saved till I was 20. So the Sadducees are a unique group. They, they only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't receive or believe or stand on any of the oral traditions, anything after that. They were very staunch. They were very worldly. They were very similar to humanist uh, uh, philosophy type of people today. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. I don't know what did they believe in. Right. But because of their humanism, they were very successful in political realms because they didn't have a moral dilemma that they had to struggle with in gaining power and wealth. And the Sadducees became very wealthy group, very influential and powerful group. And so they were very prevalent and they had access to Jesus because because of the power that they had gained um, in in the, the, the days that Jesus lived. And so this is the group of Sadducees that come to Jesus. And because of their theology, they come up with this question that, that would just, you know, like the world does today. And they just try to belittle people. You believe in God. You actually believe there's a God who created and you believe in some guy named Jesus. And you actually believe that some fish swallowed a man and swam him through the ocean. You actually believe that some guy built a boat and the whole world flooded. Yes, I believe all those things. But, you know, it's this ridicule type of, of um, you know, badgery that, that's effective. It's effective in our schools. And so they come to Jesus and they're like, okay, so this guy has, ha, you know, and, and first of all, you got to understand the law. That according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, let's, let's go ahead and turn there just for a minute. I want you guys to see it. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, in verse 5, Deuteronomy 25, 5. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's to her. So the, the law of Moses said that you, you had to marry your brother's wife and the offspring that you had, the kids that you had, you would name them after the dead brother so that his name would go on. 
You know, this happened in the, in the Bible. Do you guys remember Judah? Um, one of the patriarchs of Israel. And, and Judah had a son named Ur. And Ur married a girl. And, and God smote him. And then he had another son, his second born son, Onan. And Onan went in to, to marry the girl. Her name was Tamar. And Onan married Tamar. And Onan didn't fulfill his godly duties. And the Bible says that, that he emitted on the ground and God smote him. So then, then Judah has a third son. And he's like, the, the, I don't know what this woman's serving in the tea, but she's already killed two of my sons. I'm not giving her the third son. And he tells her, well, just wait until he's of age and then I'll give him to you to be your husband or to, yeah, to be your husband. And, and, and then time comes and the boy grows and she can tell that, that Judah's not going to fulfill the oath of, of the situation. And so Judah's out on his travels and he runs into this veiled woman and, and she's a prostitute. And Judah goes into her and they, they decide on a goat for the price. And Judah says, well, I don't have a goat with me, but hold my signet ring and, and I'll go get a goat from the home and, and I'll bring it back to you and you can give me my ring back as the, as the price. And she says, okay. And he goes home and he sends his servants back with a goat and he says, go find that prostitute and get my ring back. And they come back with the goat. And they're like, there's no prostitute there. We couldn't find her. But, but we did find out that Tamar, your, 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 your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And Judah thought, oh, great. I, I'm out. My youngest son doesn't have to marry her. She's pregnant. Have her murdered. Have her killed. Just kill her. She's guilty of adultery because she was promised to my youngest son. And Tamar shows up with that ring in her hand. And she says, the owner of this ring is the father of this child. And Judah says, nope. <laughs> Whoops. And you know, what, you know what's crazy about that story? That child that she was pregnant with, is the one that God chose to bring Jesus through, the Messiah. And the line of Jesus comes right through that child, up through Tamar. And a crazy situation, you know, like with all the things with David, and it was the child that David and Bathsheba had that God used to, to bring Messiah. And so, um, but that's, that's an example. And then Ruth and Boaz is another example, a kinsman redeemer of this situation that the Sadducees are talking about. And so the Sadducees bring up this story and they say the first one had her, second one's heaven. They all died. Who's, whose husband is she going to be? Um, who's going to have her as a wife in heaven, these seven brothers? And so this is what Jesus says. Verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? And I'd hate for Jesus to say that to me. You're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. And so many times with so many conversations that I have, people just don't understand what's true and what's not because they don't know the scriptures of the power of God. And within the scriptures, the truth of the life and of this world and of what's true and not is found in them and of theology and of understanding and knowing the scriptures. And Jesus said, you err because you don't know what the Holy Scripture says. And, and, and they made a huge mistake. And Jesus is not going to be nice to these guys, not even a little bit. You mistake because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. Some of you guys are like, yes. <laughs> You're out of here, dude. <laughs> no more of you. And some others of you may be all oh, bummer. Wow, what do you mean there's no marriage or given in marriage in heaven, you know? And it's a sad point. And Jesus says that, that we will be like, but are like the angels in heaven. First of all, I want to I be very clear here. Jesus said you are like the angels of heaven. So when someone says to me, oh, my uncle died, he got his wings, and he's an angel in heaven now, and he flies around, and he comes to my house and blesses it sometimes. And, and when he's mad, he haunts it, and... Sorry, but that's not biblical. Your uncle don't, didn't get wings. He's not an angel. It's not what the Bible teaches. We don't die and become angels. We're, we're, we're saints. We're a different class. But we will receive a spiritual body just like Jesus did. And that spiritual body, we saw the examples. Jesus walked through the walls and, and he didn't have limitations and, you know, traveled between dimensions. And so we will receive as the angels do. So we'll have qualities that are angelic. But there's a different class between who were once human and those that were created angels. But Jesus said you will be like the angels and there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage. The first thing I think of when I, when I hear this is, don't you think it's interesting? Don't you find it fascinating that one of the consistencies in, in false religions uh, across the world and, and through that scarlet thread 
the, the Babylonian system that started in Genesis 6 and that red scarlet thread that runs all the way to Revelation 19 where the Babylonian dis- system is finally defeated. One of, and, and it's the same God of that, that scarlet thread from Genesis 6 to Revelation 19, which is yet future, which includes the days we live in today. But one of the rewards in heaven for many false religions is what? Is sex. Is virgins. What happens in Islam if you, if you um, or become a martyr for, for jihad? What's your reward? 72 Virginians, right? Well, and, and even here in our own, in our own community, what, what is one of the factors of heaven is multiple wives in heaven. Okay, but how do you reconcile that with what Jesus just said? Jesus said they'll, they'll neither marry nor given in marriage. And, and so for those of us that it makes sad because we do have wonderful spouses and wonderful relationships, you say, well, will I know my spouse in heaven? Well, of course you will. Will I have a special relationship with them in heaven? Well, of course you will. You're not going to be more stupider there than you are here. You're going to get smarter, I promise. And for some of us, that's a good thing. And, and so I do believe God's going to allow special relationships and, you know, and, if, and things that, that are eternal. And the thing is, I promise you, you're not going to be bumped out in heaven. The, the relationship that you're going to have and the fullness that you're going to have of joy and of life and, and of relationship with the people you love here, with Jesus, you're just not going to have any problems. You're not going to have the, you know, you're not going to have to deal with the things we deal with here on the earth. You know, I thought, well, if, if God allowed marriage in heaven, then what if it didn't work out after a couple trillion years? Would he have to allow divorce? And, and there definitely won't be any lawyers there. So how is he going to solve that? <laughs> We're going to find one to, so no marriage, no divorce, but I promise you anything that, you know, anything, you know, the other thing the Bible says in Revelation, it says that in heaven, there's no sea there. Now I grew up by the, by the beach and I'm like, that bummed me out. I'm like, seriously, God, no ocean. But he said, there'll be a sea of glass there, but I guarantee you, you won't miss the sea. Whatever he, he replaces it with will be greater. The Bible says the things that God has prepared for you are greater than you could ever think or imagine. I mean, that's beyond. And you guys can imagine some pretty cool things that heaven's going to be like. And God says that won't even touch it. I'm not even going to give you my normal example today. I'm going to let you go free from that one today of what it would be like. But, but whatever you can think or imagine, God says, won't even touch how great it's going to be in heaven. And the reason why God doesn't reveal too much more of what heaven's going to be like for us is because we would all jump off a bridge to get there. And so he doesn't, he can't tell you too much. He's like, it's going to be too awesome, too great. So the fact that you're, you don't have to, or there's no marrying or giving in marriage there, don't worry. Don't let it bother you. Amen? It'll be better. Mo better. Promise. Where are we at? 26. Can we just finish this section and then we'll be done? And it says, but, con- but concerning the dead, they will... That, excuse me, but concerning the dead that rise, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. And again, it's a terrible thing for Jesus to say to somebody, you are greatly mistaken. You don't know the scriptures and you're greatly mistaken. And so Jesus solves the other dilemma that they have. First, he tells them about the error because they don't know the scriptures and about what really happens in heaven. And then he goes on. And, and because they don't believe in the resurrection, in life after death, they'll only receive, they think they have him trapped to the first five books of Moses because he can't use any other source to prove to them that there's a resurrection other than the first five books of Moses. They got him cornered again. And so Jesus takes them to one of the five books of Moses and shows them right in the, in the book of Exodus where there is a resurrection and there is life after death. And he said, haven't you read in the burning bush where God says to, to Moses, I, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already what? Dead. And he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, don't you Sadducee see? I'm not the God of the dead, but the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did resurrect and they are alive and I am their God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. 27. 27 plus, what do I get in the last chapter? About 8 in the last chapter. 
That's all right. Some really, really good stuff in the second half of Mark. You guys come back next week. A bummer I didn't get to it. Some powerful stuff in the second half of Mark chapter 12. So want to um, pray for everybody. I want to give everybody an opportunity. Carl, we can kill the lights. We can have the worship team come up and close us in a song. Um, and, and as always, we don't want to give anybody an opportunity to leave today without having an opportunity to get your heart and life right with Jesus Christ. If you want to receive Jesus Christ in your heart and you never have done that, we want to give you an opportunity to place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. And it's as simple as a prayer. And, and, and the, the words that I'm going to lead us in a prayer as a church family, and I'm asked that we all pray out loud. And, and, and there's no magic in the words. You can say the words a hundred times. You can say this prayer out loud and it means nothing. There's magic in a heart that surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you mean it in your heart and you surrender your heart and life to the, Jesus, to the Lord Jesus Christ today, ask him in your heart, admit that you're a sinner, that you need a savior. God will come in and change your life today. And today the Bible says, if one sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner and the angels in heaven will rejoice over you today. And if you don't know Jesus, don't leave here today without asking him in your heart repenting of your sins and getting your life right with him. Amen? Let's pray together out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to forgive. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hold on, I got one more thing before you leave. I, I don't want to let you guys go today until I challenge you guys just in the forgiveness call that, that we read about in the Bible today. If there's somebody in your heart, if there's somebody in your life that you're struggling to forgive, I don't want you to walk through that door until you've left it here and you in your heart have, as Jesus said, when you stand to pray, and we're standing to pray, when you stand to pray, forgive them. It's a decision that you're going to make that you will make, that, that God is calling you to make anyways, to forgive. So I, I want each one of you just to take a moment and close your eyes. And, and if there's somebody in your heart that you have bitterness towards, if there's somebody that has done you wrongly, I want you to forgive them. I want you to say in your heart right now, I forgive you, release that, and let God take that from your life. Because it's only going to hurt you. It's only going to hurt the people that you love and the people that love you the most. It's not going to affect the people that you're mad at or that have hurt you. And forgive them. And watch God change their life. And by forgiving them, you, you, you do the opposite. You heap hot coals on their head, the Bible says. I'm going to pray for you guys. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for everyone that's in here. God, we pray that you pour out your spirit upon each person. And Lord, if any of us have unforgiveness, if we have bitterness in our lives, in our hearts towards anybody, Jesus, I pray that we would just find the strength right now to make a decision to forgive blank. I forgive I forgive, I forgive blank, I forgive this, I forgive. And Lord, that we would be released from the bondage of unforgiveness and bitterness. Thank you, Jesus, that you delivered us. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. Thank you, Jesus, that you care enough for us to tell us these real and hard truths about life. And Jesus, I pray if anybody in here struggles with depression, with being down, that you would prescribe, Lord, a healing of of, of joy and of reading the Psalms and of worship music and of, of Lord's song that, that we would worship you when that distressing spirit comes upon us, that we would find a place through, through worship music and the Psalms and, and, and Lord, that you would heal and begin to remove that distressing spirit from our lives and from this place in Jesus name. Amen.